the future has arrived. As the world and humanity itself moves faster and faster into unimaginable possibilities, old institutions that built connection and shaped our sense of meaning are falling by the wayside. In their wake, profound questions about ethics, our purpose, and spirituality demand new answers. Join your host, Scott Mason, in Season 2 of the Purpose Highway Podcast. We will explore how these social changes will revolutionize our society. We will learn how they impact our own search for connection and meaning. And we will hear stories of influencers whose lives have had radical change from the inside. And found profound connection to others and themselves through a new definition of meaning. The future has arrived. Are you ready? When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's NOLA, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's NOLA crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's NOLA's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's NOLA is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A dot com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's NOLA's website for yourself and find out how good it is. Hello, everybody. It's Scott Mason revving up for another race down the Purpose Highway. If you like what we're doing, be sure to subscribe and, and give us a thumbs up on YouTube or a review on Apple. And sitting next to me today in the front seat is Melody Stanford Martin. Melody is a social ethicist, communications expert, and author of Brave Talk, Building Resilient Relationships in the face of conflict. She is the founder of educational platform Brave Talk Project and a regular contributor to none other than the great magazine Psychology Today. Melody grew up as a Pentecostal pastor's kid in California, and she studied theology for 10 years, obtaining her master's in divinity in 2016. During her graduate studies, she developed a passion for social ethics through the Religion and Conflict Transformation Program at Boston University School of Theology. Today, Melody works with people across all political backgrounds and religious traditions, too, focusing on rhetorical innovation, courageous community engagement, and out-of-the-box thinking to solve social problems, and heaven knows we need it today. In the meantime, Melody, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you for having me. It is a true pleasure, and I cannot wait for this conversation. We are going to talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. I'll start 
by going off a little bit. And even though there's a little bit of noise in the background here, hey, that just gives me an excuse to be louder. I am in New York City. We can't keep the noise totally at bay, but we can be loud when we need to. Melody and audience members, we are currently enduring a secret plague, a society-wide crisis of the heart. This crisis, I believe, is manifested by the idea that there is one and one overriding value, one overriding need that trumps every other value in the entire moral realm. The value of me. Or perhaps my group. I cite as an example, during the pandemic of 2020, certain politicians openly said, with regards to those who might be infected, some people are just going to have to die. Presumably, it wasn't that politician or his constituency. I don't believe most people will vote for those that want them dead. But it did show that there was not necessarily a value in the political discourse that this person was engaging in of the universal importance of every life. I am unafraid, Melody, and anyone who listens, to take a stand on this, and this show does too. And that stand is that every human being matters, everyone. We have had people on this show, Melody, who are ethicists, and they each have talked about the power of individual choice and what we as individuals face when making difficult decisions. How are social ethics different? And where does it fit into that diatribe I just had a few minutes ago about the secret plague? I am so glad you asked. Tomes have been written, as we know, about the question, how can I be a good person in the world? How can I make moral choices? That's the traditional philosophical question of ethics stemming all the way back to Greek philosophy. What we've realized in the last, we'll say recent history, is that what that doesn't do is doesn't allow us to analyze systems, larger systems of communities, institutions, organizations, and how those systems facilitate relationships, <laughs> right? So, so if we just look at our own individual actions, we don't look at how we are living in harmony with those around us, how we're living in harmony with uh, as citizens as uh, of not only our nation, but of the earth, we actually have a pretty significant myopia because it's all about us. It's very egocentric, which again, not always a bad thing to look at ourselves to introspect, but we are interconnected with everyone around us. So social ethics, excuse me, everyone always says the word ethicists is very hard to say, it myself is. included, <laughs> social ethicists. Uh, <laughs> uh, social ethicists look at the following question, how can I be in right relationship? How do the systems of our world facilitate right relationship? Or do they facilitate unhealthy relationship? And I think some of us can live lives where we are technically making moral choices that are correct, but we mm -hmm. might not be in right relationship with those around us. One of the issues that people might have with that is that day to day, we can control the 
immediate environment that we're in, or we can at least assert control over our reaction to that environment and make ethical choices that might be complex, but they're at least uh, deducible through a series of questions or an appeal to our individual values and ethics, particularly when we are living in the midst of a very pluralistic society where there are constantly shifting values and perspectives and and moral bases for people making decisions around them. We can always just resort to what we believe in and the impact on our immediate world to make those decisions. How do we even confirm, A, what systems are, B, that these systems even exist? Mm, that's a great question. Well, the systems do exist, otherwise our society would cease to function. <laughs> we, we have institutions, we have mm -hmm. practices, policies, communities. Let me give you a possibly more tangible example. Uh, so if I see someone who doesn't have a home on the street, yeah. uh, if I'm an ethical person and I think of myself strictly in traditional ethical frameworks, I might say, oh, I'd be a good person if I give this, if this, I give this homeless woman $5. Yeah. Okay. Some, you know, some people would wrestle with that question. If, am mm -hmm. I enabling their homelessness? Am I enabling social, um, disengagement or do you just give out of the generosity of your heart? Maybe your faith tradition or whatever would impact that decision. But if you're just looking in that moment, isolating your individual actions and saying, what makes me an ethical person is giving in that moment and not necessarily caring about the larger system of homelessness itself. What creates homelessness? What perpetuates homelessness? What are the systems that go into that homelessness? right? What are the policies and laws and practices? Is this person a, mm -hmm. a vet who's not getting care? Is this person mm -hmm. have mental illness and they're not being cared for by our society? Are we practicing, are we passing laws? Am I supporting politicians who are, who are passing laws that, that have perpetuated homelessness? What is my larger relationship to the systems that I exist in? And how do I get beyond my own little myopic thinking to think about the bigger picture and all of the, all of the things that go into the conditions that cause that person to become homeless? That's a much bigger set of questions yeah. than just, do I give $5 in the moment? Yeah. Yeah. It could be a potentially overwhelming one too. I'm going to cite an example that comes to mind in the homelessness example that you just gave is maybe a perfect entree into this example. And I would be curious once you hear this example to maybe walk us through how this person might think about a particular decision or decision sets. So I knew a woman once who considered herself a good person, a socially progressive person who is the sort, I don't know that she would have given uh, $5 on the street to a homeless person, but she would have expressed concern for it. She might have supported charitably homeless services, uh, nonprofits or things like that. She lived on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, which is a very historic district with a lot of very old, beautiful, character-laden, low-rise residential buildings that are expensive. And one thing that she was very involved in was preserving the historicity of that neighborhood by making sure that zoning laws 
did not allow tall buildings to exist in that neighborhood, which limits the supply of housing, therefore raising the overall price of housing, which as someone who worked in the homeless services area, I know that price housing, housing prices are one of the biggest contributors that there are to homelessness. Not only that, but she generally was opposed to tax increases, particularly on her property. And the services that were needed to uh, even fund that nonprofit all came from the government. So imagine you're that person and you're thinking, okay, I have been contributing to this homeless services nonprofit. I'm a good person. I'm a good citizen. I'm upright. I'm nice to people every day. Now this Melody Stanford Martin person is coming on Scott Mason's podcast telling me that I have to think about all this other stuff. I don't even know where to begin. What do I do? Just move into abject poverty myself and give all of my millions to, to others and, and, and do without? How, how, does, how does someone in her situation even begin to make ethical choices, especially because I'll just add one final thing. She may feel I've worked hard my whole life. I want to enjoy the things that living in a low density neighborhood that not everyone has access to can bring me. What do you tell someone like that? You know, I, I've actually had a conversation recently with, recently with very progressive folks who said, but they want to build low income housing in our neighborhood and we are blocking that measure, right? Like, I see a bit of a cognitive dissonance there because you want to be inclusive, you want to be progressive, you want to promote economic justice, but you don't want it in your backyard. Yeah. Right? Okay, so here's what I would say to that. And this might make this might make some people angry. <laughs> what does it take for you to feel like a good person? Is that coming at the cost of someone else? Mm. A lot of what we call, and this is a pretty critical read, this is a pretty almost cynical read of the nonprofit world, but, and I, as someone who worked for a large nonprofit clearinghouse, let me tell the story really quick while I get back to your question. Good. I worked for a large nonprofit fundraising clearinghouse who raised like hundreds of millions of dollars for other smaller grassroots charities. Wow. And I was doing graphic design, design at the time, and I was laying out a chart that showed the amount of money fundraised versus the amount of grants given out. The difference was about about 95% of that money never made it to hmm. people actually doing on the ground work. Yeah, It went to fund a huge staff in a large downtown, beautiful riverfront city building. Wow. Making really fancy things like leather bound journals for their top donors who are probably just going to throw those journals straight into the trash. If this, if this clearinghouse ever solved the problems that they have set out to solve, they would all no longer have jobs. And this is what we describe as the nonprofit industrial complex, because these charities exist many times to self perpetuate and are monetarily incentivized not to solve the problems they say they're solving. So back to your original question. If I'm a good person in the world, do I need an object of pity or an object of charity? Mm. Do I need that homeless person to exist for me to feel good about myself? Because I get to give to them and I get the warm, fuzzy experience of giving. Ooh, doesn't that feel nice? Ooh, I'm such a good person. Look at me go. $5. Halo around my head. I walk around with a little glow for the rest of the day while not caring about the systemic and historical conditions that put that person on my street corner in the first Mm -hmm. place. Mm Mm-hmm. 
So I would say this requires a much larger shift in thinking and of I could spend time breaking down everything you said, Scott, about your friend, the woman you know, about, you know, the number of housing, the architecture on the street. Maybe we need to think more innovatively and creatively about Mm -hmm. how we can make low-income housing beautiful or, even more exciting, Maxine uh, Waters of California. Walters or Walters? Waters? Walters? Maxine Waters, I think. I'm sure whatever I say it is, it'll be wrong. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Democratic senator of California just reintroduced a bill called the Ending Homelessness Act that is trying to give vouchers to people for homes. Homelessness vouchers, right? Or housing security vouchers. So instead of building these big, ugly projects, why don't we just give people vouchers and, and stipends to live where they want and so we don't segregate our housing in these weird, ugly ways, right? That's a city planning issue. That's a systems issue that has to do with social social ethics, architecture, city planning, utilities. I mean, it, I think the reason it's hard to wrap our minds around is because this stuff gets so interdisciplinary so fast. Uh, and, you you know, thinking about issues like class and race and everything. Yeah, I agree with you. It does get overwhelming really quickly. But I think fundamentally we need to look at our own identities as people. Mm. What makes us good people? Is it us feeling good about ourselves? Having the, mm. the warm, fuzzy feeling that we are being impactful in the world or actually mm-hmm. being impactful in the world? Mm-hmm. There's a big difference. Mm-hmm. You have triggered so much inside of me. When I worked in the social services world, there were individuals that I worked with who were some of the, some of the meanest people I've ever encountered in my life. And yet there did seem to be a joy a lot of times in sometimes even proposing policy ideas that hurt the poor while wrapping oneself in the cloak of being employed in a do-gooder organization. And I think that one of the things that social ethics, as you're describing it, might challenge is whether that actually is making the problem worse because it's allowing the appearance of being good if you enter into that mindset as being confused with actually being a good person and examining in depth what being a good person is. I also have to remark, well, actually, let me just get your thoughts on that. Yeah. When you're saying that, I'm thinking of how many charity events have I gone to where they're just playing a slideshow of, you know, like poor people in Africa, nameless poor people in Africa, just living their lives right? Totally dehistoricalized, dehistoricized and decontextualized from, from the fact that colonial powers have spent centuries pillaging all the resources in Africa. And now we blame and shame Africans for being poor. And we put them on slideshows at fancy thousand dollar plate mm. dinners and we dress in finery and we gawk at them. That's not mm. okay. So again, I'm going to make some people mad. That's not that much different mm. than the human zoos at the world fair at the turn wow. of the 20th century. How is it different? So I think I have to say, yeah, this stuff has been so normalized in our culture that we don't think about it critically, but it's hurting. It's hurting people the way that we, we create this, this hierarchy of the good people who happen to often be wealthy and those poor, bad people, right? It, It requires an entire change in thinking. One of those changes in thinking that comes to mind immediately, and something because I really feel a passion for, 
is certain values that seem to have moved out of the current ethical discourse or even political or cultural discourse that are implicated in a lot of what you're talking about. If we're going to really consider ourselves individuals of conscience and behave accordingly, and at the same time, at least attempt to take into consideration the systems that we operate in, benefit benefit from, and through ethical choices that we're making around who we vote for or propositions on the ballot that we support or not, sacrifice becomes paramount as an ethical concern. I have to say, and I invite anyone listening to or watching this podcast to let me know if they disagree and, and please present some examples because I'd love to hear them. But I don't seem to recall sacrifice in order for us to improve the lot of others as being a major factor in the current political or cultural discourse around ethics or around around social betterment generally. Uh, but am I just living under a rock? And do you think there is a relationship between social ethics as practice and the concept of sacrifice? I have a hard time with sacrifice as someone who grew up uh, fundamentalistic. You know, so I, I hear, I think I hear that, what you're saying, that there's a problematic in that because we, I think that can go too far, right? Mm. We, I don't want to lose myself mm -hmm. in my in my ability to give. But I, I think, let me offer a different way to look at it. So recently I did a TED talk on sharing power and how often we are taught that being successful, being, uh, being powerful means to hoard power, yeah. money, to, and, yeah. to, and to use domination against other people yeah. in order to, to keep that for ourselves, right? Okay, so let's say I've got 100 apples and my neighbor has one apple. And I've gotten those apples by beating back anyone who would try to get other apples. Like the reason yeah. I have a lot of apples is really because I kind of stole those apples. Like they're not yeah. really rightfully mine. Yeah. So someone comes along and says, hey, why don't you give your neighbor like a few of those apples? You know, you, you can certainly survive with 90 apples. And the neighbor goes, yeah, that'd be great. You know, I'm really struggling with my one apple over here. Um, it can feel an awful lot like we're being asked to sacrifice. <laughs> Yeah. Those were, were those ever rightfully ours to begin with? And I think that's what, if you really start going down this passive path of social ethics, you really have to start looking at the history of colonization and how the reason we have the wealth that we have in this country is because we took land and labor and resources from other people. So to ask us now to make some of this right and promote policies that, that involve sharing that stuff it feels like sacrifice, but I'm going to offer that it's not sacrifice. It's making th things right. It's, it's, it's repairing the past. It's what you might call reparations in a large, large sense, right? Not just for black people, but for in general. So let's go back to the example of the apples. Okay. So you, what, what I hear you saying is I earned all hundred of those apples. Don't touch my apples. Yep. Right. Okay. But saying that means I don't care if I hang on to all hundred of my apples, if my neighbors are struggling to put food on the table, if my roads are collapsing, if my education system sucks, which means my 
workforce is going to be undertrained and undereducated, which means we generate problems in this country that stem from a lack of education like the anti-vax movement, right? These things are all connected. If we defund public systems and services like education and healthcare and the criminal justice system, what happens as a result? We have to live in a society where everything's broken. So yeah, we can hang on to our apples, but what happens when we do that? What are the larger implications of it? Right? So the charity model, the what I would call the trickle-down model of, of charity wealth, would say that people with 100 apples should give 10 away, and they yeah. get to choose who those apples go to. So they yeah. get to pick their kind of favorite neighbors to give them to. Yeah. Okay? So it really, what it comes down to is that people with wealth get to decide based on their imaginative heartstrings who is most in need versus who may be actually most in need. Okay. So a lot of times the quote unquote sexy charities get a ton of money. Yeah. And it's the charities that actually might make a long-term systemic difference, like teaching people to fish instead of just giving them a fish is what we're talking about. Those charities aren't sexy enough and they don't get funded. Right. So in my opinion, as a social ethicist, that model lets a lot of people fall through the cracks, which is why we have hundreds of thousands of homeless people, for example, in our country, right? If charity, the charity system could solve that, if the nonprofit sector could solve that, it has had 40 years to solve that problem and has not yet done so. If it could have solved that problem, it would have done so. So we need the commonwealth, I would argue. We need the commonwealth. We need collective systems that can we all pay into and we make sure we solve these problems and we fund things properly, right? So this is what I would offer. We can either say, hey, wealthy people, give away 10 of your apples, but do it however you feel like, however, whatever, whatever floats your boat in the way that you feel like giving to, you can, you can create, uh, you know, scholarship programs for kids, or you can like, kick off this weird space race that is only benefiting you and your, your desire to go to space. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Or we can say, okay, let's all pay back into the collective and distribute that wealth with experts and policies to the best of our ability so that no one falls through the cracks, right? And I think the counter argument to that would be, well, the government is inefficient and bureaucratic. You know, you're right. But I think that part of the reason is because we've we've gutted government so much that we are no longer effective. So I love innovation. I love innovation. And I think that we need to, I hope that we can, can as a people stop thinking about private innovation versus public bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. I think public Mm -hmm. innovation actually in most of the developed countries around the world have been able to solve incredible social problems through Mm -hmm. public sector innovation. It's not an either or. We need that creativity in the public world to solve those problems. So again, I think it really comes back to this latent McCarthyism, right? We're so scared of communists that we refuse to do anything that contributes to the commonwealth. And I think we really need to seriously reconsider that. Well, is there not, though, a legitimate moral concern embedded in the proposition that you're making, particularly when it comes to social services? And that is, some would argue, that not every person, even if they have equivalent intrinsic worth, Not everyone's problems are equally deserving of being solved. And so what you're arguing for, in a way, could be opening the doors to 
redistributing wealth, power, commodities to those that don't deserve it due to their own actions. What would you say to those that make that argument? And that's, by the way, one of the biggest arguments that you hear against expansion of, for instance, the social welfare safety net in the United States, as well as some other parts of the Western world. Who's someone who doesn't deserve it? What what do they do? What are the, what actions do they do that that makes them undeserving of help? One could argue that they put themselves in that position. For instance, and I'm not necessarily advocating for this, so I really want to make that very very clear. I am playing devil's advocate when I'm about to say what I'm about to say. Okay. I don't want to be canceled ten years from now because of saying something that I don't even believe. Sure. But one could say, no one forced you to start taking crack. Why should my money go to helping you overcome your addiction? That was your fault. Rot on the street. Why should I be spending money for that? You don't deserve it because it was your choice to use drugs. No one held a gun to your head. I am not an addiction expert, so I can't speak to this as from an ex- expert perspective. Yeah. But addiction is... An incredibly complicated subject. Happy people don't go out and just decide one day to mm-hmm. get addicted to something like crack mm-hmm. or cocaine. And mm-hmm. well, I'll say crack cocaine because uh, crack is typically used. Actually, if you watch the documentary The Thirteenth, have you seen it? No, I haven't. But highly please give it a shout out for the audience. Highly recommend the docu- documentary The Thirteenth on Netflix. It's about the Thirteenth Amendment and the war mm-hmm. on drugs in particular. Mm-hmm. And how mm-hmm. the war on drugs really was memos leaked from the 70s that talk about the war on drugs being designed to effectively function as a new Jim Crow yeah. and and massively expanded our prison industrial complex, our prison yeah. carceral system. So when you say someone's on crack, first of all, the, the word crack is and I'm not saying this to shame you, but or blame you at all, because a lot of people don't know this. The word crack is the same as cocaine. But in in criminal cases, a lot of times or in the media. The word crack is used for people of color being addicted and cocaine is used for white people. Mm-hmm. It's the same exact substance. So you say someone's addicted to crack, it evo- evokes images of someone, of a person of color living in the inner city. But cocaine mm-hmm. is like for, for frat boys on Wall mm-hmm. Street. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing. But for people of color, it's stigmatized. And for people on Wall Street, it's seen as a mark of pride. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. The the social implications of abuse are much different depending on your class. Mm-hmm. So why what I hear a lot of times in this anti-addiction stuff, right, for people who are lower income, who've dealt with toxic stress of poverty their entire lives, they are shamed and demonized for addiction and wanting to escape that reality sometimes Mm -hmm. whereas wealthy people in the hamptons Mm. can have cute little drug habits and they get to go to rehab it's fine right it's just kind of like oh too bad for me right Mm -hmm. so so there are implications of this that go much deeper than just who deserves it who doesn't deserve it i'm of the mind that no one really deserves it (laughs) right Mm -hmm. no one no one deserves much but if we if we treat people as human beings and focus on human rights, first and foremost, that everyone deserves safe food, safe housing, education, health care, and opportunity, right? Maybe we would create a condition of society conditions. Maybe we would create society, <laughs> maybe we would create societal conditions that discourage 
addiction because people's needs are being met and they don't need to escape life because mm -hmm. life is livable. Mm -hmm. So again, that larger social condition, right? That the, the conditioning, the programming, right? So, so I think we need to get away from blaming people for addiction and just say, if you need help, you need help and not just help to get into rehab, but help to possibly create a new future for yourself. So you mm -hmm. don't have to rely on these substances to get by. Melody, when we were talking about entrepreneurialism and making sure that there were ample financial rewards for those that take the risks that lead to closing the gaps in the economy that innovation exists to close, uh, there is admittedly, one might at least possibly concede, the value of having a culture steeped in consumerism. Because if there isn't consumerism, the goods or services that the entrepreneur provides wouldn't have a market to sell to. What is, first of all, do you even agree with that statement? Number two, do you believe that consumerism is helpful, unhelpful, or something else from a social ethics perspective? The consumerism is one of the biggest parts of our GDP and our economy, right? When people stop spending, we usually go into recession. So I'm not against consumerism at all. I mean, we can talk about the spirituality of consumerism and the rise of maybe worshiping, <laughs> worshiping goods. But no, I absolutely believe that a healthy economy, and again, I'm, you know, I have a business degree, but I'm not, I wouldn't call myself an economist, but I believe mm -hmm. a healthy economy involves the, the, the natural, I believe that a healthy economy involves the natural flow of money. So that involves people offering services and goods, people buying offering services, buy, people buying services and goods and having that exchange, right? That's a form of sharing power, buying and selling, mm. especially local businesses, right? Making mm -hmm. that, getting that money circulating. Yeah. What's happened in our country because we've persistently lowered the amount of responsibility of very wealthy people is that wealth has been siphoned to the top. Mm -hmm. People who are hoarding that wealth, shipping it off seas and not putting back into the economy. And so that wealth is being siphoned off and the gap between wealthy and poor people is becoming wider and wider and wider. What we're experiencing right now is a horrendous backlash on both the far left and the far right because people are poor and struggling. 50% of our country lives in food and housing insecurity. And what I mean by that is that one large expense, for example, having to move unexpectedly and come up with a security deposit, having to fix a very large car expense, having to pay for a huge doctor's bill, that might actually threaten to put them on the streets, right? Mm -hmm. People live on a razor's edge margin in our country, and that's caused a ton of resentment. And I think it's driving a lot of our politics right now. That's interesting because I'm hearing embedded in what you're saying that if we had a stronger sense of ethics as part of our cultural discourse about what made people good or not, or what made behavior or decisions ethical or not, we might have less of this uh, social division ultimately happening and be able to be more effectively uh, cohesive as a culture. Am I understanding you correctly, at least in theory? I think so. I mean, if, if you have, if you hypothetically have a society where everyone can eat, everyone has a home, and everyone has opportunity, 
there's no need for resentment. There's no need for division so much because basic needs are being met and that increases happiness, that decreases addiction, that actually decreases healthcare costs because people are dealing with less hypertension and diabetes and heart disease that comes from the stress of poverty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if our society can be healthier as a whole, we actually can live in more harmony with our neighbors. And that's going back to the very beginning of this conversation. How do we live in right relationship? All of these policies that impact people's lives that are that are threatening our relationships because we can't live at peace when some people are suffering, that comes under the umbrella of social ethics. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge net to cast. But if I want to live in right relationship with my neighbors, I want to make sure my neighbors are okay on a fundamental level. You mentioned a minute ago the spirituality of consumerism. Now, you can't drop a bomb like that and not expect the Purpose Highway to curve right back to it, Melody. Let's do it. Hi, everybody. It's Scott here. If you thought part one of this episode with Melody Stanford Martin was good, wait till you hear part two. Next time, we're going to be discussing why the silent revolution of thought around how people connect to each other through the search for meaning and ethics, spirituality, and purpose is happening. What ethics mean in a brand new world and in a dialogue that you will be riveted by, we will discuss Melody's radical new prescription for what spirituality can look like in a post-revolution world. If you've tuned in and liked this episode, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple or a comment on YouTube. And I cannot wait to see you next time for a challenging and rewarding trip down the Purpose Highway. When you're racing down the Purpose Highway, we want to make sure you're healthy and happy every step of the way. That's why we're proud to partner with It's Nola, 21st century plant-based healthy granola snack bites made with real ingredients and audacious flavor. It's Nola crafts small batch hand-rolled granola balls that are vegan, gluten-free, and naturally low in sugar. It's Nola's delightful bites come in three flavors. Luscious cranberry coconut, sassy mango masala, and dark, decadent, chewy chocolate. It's Nola is available to both individual customers and for wholesale accounts at itsnola.com. That's I-T-S-N-O-L-A dot com. Guests on this show are already enjoying this delicious snack. Check out It's Nola's website for yourself and find out how good it is. <laughs>